Have you ever gotten something that wasn't what you wanted? Wasn't what we were asking for? You know, I remember as a kid, I mean, we're getting close to Christmas. And um, there would always, always be, a, you know, I would give my parents a list of things that maybe they could choose from if they want to buy me something. But I remember that it was very typical that as I opened the presents, that there would be, in my, and usually my, my mom would say, here, open these first. So I would get it, I'm excited, well, maybe it's one of these things I've asked for, open it up, and it's socks and underwear. Yeah. And you know, I'm like, well, well, thanks. Thank you, mom and dad, for the socks and underwear. To say I wasn't excited about that would be just an honest truth. Because I'm not excited to have socks and underwear as a kid. I want that toy. I want that, those things that I specifically asked for. You know, the truth is, a lot of times when it comes to our relationship with God, we're not asking for the right thing. We think we know what we need, but we always don't get that right. We ask for something that's not the most important thing. When I was in college, and I was a, a college student right here in Springfield at Baptist Bible College, I would live in the summer with my grandparents in Iowa. It was the best plan in the world. It was rent-free and my grandmother cooked. It was awesome. I, I mean, I got to bank everything I earned during the summer so that I could come back down to Springfield and give it all away to the registrar when I started school, okay? So I didn't spend much money. About midway through the summer, uh, I told my grandfather, I said, hey, Grandpa, you know what? I, I need a stereo for my car. I drove this awesome Buick LeSabre that looked like a boat. To say it wasn't a chick magnet is not an exaggeration. And I remember I, I was thinking all I had was this little dial, turn the dial radio, and man, I, you know, this is my car. Thankful for a car, but if I could only have a stereo, maybe that would like help me in the girl department and I could get a girlfriend. So I told my grandfather, I, I, Grandpa, I really need to use some of this money in the bank to buy a stereo for my car. My grandfather, never forget, he says, Eddie, he says, uh, you need new tires. You want a stereo. Now, I'll help you buy two tires if you'll buy the other two because you need new tires and you want the stereo. I have used that speech on my kids throughout my parenting to the point now that my son will repeat it back to me as we're doing some financial discussions. Dad, you need new tires and you want the stereo. There's a difference. That's kind of like what was going on here in this story. Let's begin in verse one of chapter two. And again, he entered Capernaum, this is Jesus, after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. So this house where Jesus is, I mean, his reputation is very strong in Capernaum as a man with great power, and he could preach, and okay, the best communicator around with the power to heal. The house immediately filled up to the point where there was not any more room left, and you couldn't even get close to the door. Verse 3, then they came to him, 
bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. Then they, okay, they, this, this group of five, four men carrying the one. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let the bed uh, on which the paralytic, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was laying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. The only problem was everyone in the room, except perhaps for Jesus, knew that they didn't come to get sins forgiven. They were hoping for a healing for their friend. They were puzzled by this, disappointed, and some were even angry that Jesus would say, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you are, and I are honest, you might say that's a pretty confusing situation. In fact, even for me as I read that, I'm thinking, well, I'm kind of sad for this guy. All he got was his sins forgiven. Did you hear what I just said? Like all he got was the sins of his life paid for by the very son of God. And now when he dies, he will go into the presence of God to live as life was designed to be lived from the very beginning. But all he got was his sins forgiven when he really wanted to be able to walk again. Well, these guys were very determined to get this guy in front of Jesus. There was no clear path. There was no way to squeeze in four guys carrying a guy on a stretcher. The crowd was too tight. But they would not be stopped. They believed with all of their heart that Jesus had the power to heal this guy. And so what do they do? They climb up on the roof of the house and they begin to tear the roof apart. Now imagine that. Whoever came up with this idea of tearing the roof apart to lower this guy down on ropes in front of Jesus certainly decided to be very creative and quite unconventional. And I, mu I must say, the guys must have had a little moment up there on the roof saying, well, you know, guys, tearing this roof apart is going to cost us. Are we ready to pay? Because homeowners don't take kindly to you tearing their roof apart. Someone's got to pay. And these guys said, we believe so strongly that Jesus has the power to heal. Let's do it. And then Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And they watched and heard with disappointment. You know, sometimes the thing, you, the thing you and I think we need most is not what we actually do need most. Sometimes we think we need a new stereo when really we would live if we had new tires. Jesus, after he kind of stirs the crowd up, he does heal this guy, okay? One of the points Jesus is making is the greatest need that you and I have is forgiveness of sin. Our suffering is not our main problem. It's an issue. But our greatest problem in life is our sin. 
You know, Tim Keller talks about this passage, and in this he says, actually, when Jesus says that it's not the things that have happened to you that, that, um, that hurt you and capture you, it's how you respond to what has happened to you. You actually are not a victim, but you are in the driver's seat because while you're not in control of the things that happen to you and the experiences that come to you, you are in control of the response with which you meet those. Now, of course, if you can't walk and you're paralyzed, it is right and good and natural to seek healing, and we should, perhaps. But he is saying, I need you to go more deeply in your understanding of who you are and what you need. Because Jesus knew that this guy who thought if he could stand up and walk and the paral- the paral- being paralyzed was gone away, his life would be absolutely revolutionized. He would never complain again. He would have everything that he needs. Jesus knew that that solving of that problem would be great for a couple months where euphoria sets in, but then pretty soon, and this is how we are, we get back to thinking we've got other things that we need just as bad, and so it, it kind of go, goes away. What is that thing that you're looking for, that you're praying for? The thing that if only God would do for you, your life would be perfect, it would be great. So for some of you, you're thinking, man, if only I had a wife. So every man out here who is saying, thinking that, raise your hand. No, I'm kidding, don't do that. Not a good technique. If only I had a wife. For some of you, you're thinking, if only I had a husband. Some of you out there are thinking, if only I had a different husband, and that's not allowed. Maybe you're thinking, if only I could be successful in what I'm doing. For for some of you, you're in the middle of relationship conflict, and and your, your feeling is, if only I could just have someone to love me. I just need people in my life to like me, to love me, to forgive me, to give me another chance. I can't stand that people don't accept me. If only my relationships were good, I'd be satisfied. Is that you today? And I just want to warn you that if that's your strategy for life, you're going to be miserable for the rest of your life because in those statements you have just given the key to your happiness and well-being to other people. It's only when they do something that you're going to be okay. And and that's not the way to live. You should be happy in God. You should be happy because do you know what? They're not in control. Maybe some of you are out here thinking, you know, if only I, if I, if I had a better house or a better car or better clothes or the coolest, newest shoes. Like I've seen these incredibly cool, bright red Nikes that I am not brave enough to wear. I'm just not that guy. I love them on everybody else, but I'm not sure I want to be that noticed when I walk into the room. What is it you think you need? If only you were successful. I just need to be respected and admired. I want people to think well of me. I want to be better and more successful than anyone else in my life and family. I need to be the king of the hill. When you look at your life and you see things like that, you can feel anxious. And the truth is, all of those things are the wrong things. 
Jeremiah 17, seven says this, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. That's who's blessed, that's who's happy, that's who's stable, that's who's okay. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. What, a good test to decide what you're trusting is this. A negative test would be this. What worries you the most? All of us have stuff in our life. So what worries you the most? What scares you the most? What if you lost it would make you feel like you might just blow away? You know, everything can change in a minute. Everyone has those things. The positive test is this. I mean, what, what is it in your life that makes you feel secure and happy and feel like you're okay? And if that were to go away, would you still be okay? And, and these are questions to ask that would uncover where is our trust? Is our trust in the Lord? Is our hope in the Lord? Or are we trusting in other things? The essence of sin is not making God your ultimate delight. Psalm 37 says, delight, your, delight thyself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Sin is trusting your life to something else other than God. He's the only one who can satisfy. To trust the Lord is to imply that you're listening to him, obeying him. You're surrendered to him because your hope for good things and satisfying things will flow out of the blessed life that comes from trusting God as the number one unchallenged source of your strength in life. You know, a lot of people, I think, they, they, they try to figure out how they can, they can succeed with God and and they kind of like have a scorecard. Like it's not a real scorecard, but it's like golf, that the lower your score, the better you are, which I hate that analogy because I have, it, my goal is to shoot under 100, 180 for you know, every round of golf, which is, you think I'm joking. My goal is to finish the course and still have a ball left. Okay. And, and some of you, you know, you have your internal scorecard and you're like, wow, um, if, if my score is 10, then I'm doing a whole lot better than my buddy who's at 25. And, you know, my friend over here whose scorecard in the sin area is 50, man, he's in big trouble. And, you know, the truth about this is that it is everybody in this room has a scorecard filled with things, and that is not how you get saved. Salvation is the gift of God to those who can't earn it and don't deserve it. We need a rescue. We need a savior. And that is why Jesus in Mark chapter one was preaching and he was saying, hey, the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. Repent and believe the gospel. The good news is God has come to intervene and to help and rescue with his grace and mercy. One time I was standing watching my kids play sports at their school 
And I got into a conversation with another father doing the very same thing. And I asked him, so, hey, what's your name? Which one is your child? And what do you do for a living? He, he told me, he says that his family owned and operated a trading company and it had been in their family for several generations. And he asked me what I did. And I said, well, I, you know, I'm actually a missionary. And for people who aren't missionaries and aren't believers, it's like the weird answer. You know, I kind of hate to tell that to people because you're like, what does a missionary do? You sit and meditate all day. You, okay, they have no idea. So there, there's not a relatability there. I said, I'm a missionary. He immediately said, well, at least for you in the end, it'll be okay. His assumption was that since I was, my profession was to be a missionary, I must be really good at the scorecard thing and I prioritize religion so I'm gonna be okay at the end. And he's, he implied with that statement, he wasn't quite sure where he was gonna land at the end. And I, then I tried to explain to him, you know, actually, that's not the way this works. And I tried to share a little bit about the good news. I'm not sure if he got it. He didn't respond. You know, the biggest problem that we have is we do need to be forgiven. We can't engineer our own forgiveness. We need a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Romans 6.23 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Forgiveness is always a work of grace. Forgiveness is always undeserved. You know, one of the most famous hymns throughout the history of the church is the hymn Amazing Grace. Anybody know that song, Amazing Grace? You know, I, I could sing a couple bars, but I'm afraid you won't sing with me. How many of you know that song? You do? So amazing. Okay, you didn't let me down. Thank you. All right. You know, it was written by a, name who, a man whose name was John Newton. When John was seven years old, his mother, who, had, who was a Christian and certainly had taught him things as a little boy, when he was only seven years old, she died. And so by the time he was 11, he, he had to find work, and he got on a ship, and he began to work on the ship. And on the ship, he wasn't around a lot of great people that discipled him in positive ways. In fact, he was not a good man at all, and the older he grew, the worse he got. Uh, he was a part of that rough sailor life and was employed in the slave trade. He was espousing free-thinking principles. He remained arrogant and insubordinate, and he lived with moral abandon. And he even said, and I quote, I sinned with a high hand. He later wrote, I'm, I made it my study to tempt and seduce others. And this was John Newton. He, he was clearly not concerned about his sin. But in 1747, on homeward journey, the ship was overtaken by an enormous storm, and Newton had been reading Thomas Akempis's writing, The Imitation of Christ. And he, the thought that came to his mind, the phrase that was out of this book, uncertain continuance of life. You know what that means is, uh, you may be about to die. Okay, that's, I'm giving some interpretation for you. That means he realized in that moment, on that trip, he may die. His, his next thought was, he recalled a proverb that went like this, because I have called and ye have refused, I also will laugh at your calamity. And it was in that encounter with the reality of God and the possibility of him dying that he realized he needed to be forgiven of his sins and he cries out in desperation, 
forgive me. Jesus, forgive me. And his life was never the same. He absolutely changed. He didn't change himself. Jesus changed him. And then he writes what has become one of the favorite songs of the faith, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. You know, the truth is, you can't ever experience the amazing grace of God until you understand and accept that you need forgiveness. You know, in this particular story, Jesus says that our greatest need is not sometimes what we think it is. Our greatest need is forgiveness. You know, whoever you are, whatever you're going through, wherever you are in your, in, on the continuum of, of your discovery of who God is, you need to hear at this very moment, you could right there in your state, cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need a savior. I need to be forgiven. Come into my life and save me. And so the story goes on. Some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their heart, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they weren't wrong. But immediately when Jesus perceived in the spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man, speaking of himself, has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed and went out in the presence of them all so that all were amazed and glorified God saying we never saw anything like this. So who can forgive sins? God alone. You know what Jesus was declaring? He was declaring I actually can forgive sins because I am God. And the religious leaders were so angry. And this actually began a conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders because they now were picking up that Jesus demonstrated the power that belonged to God and now he declares a power to forgive sin. And so Jesus was in fact claiming that he was the son of God, the Messiah. And so they fought him from this point all the way to the cross. 
Some have said, well, this man didn't ask for forgiveness of sin. Well, we've we've already seen that in verse 8, Jesus could read the hearts and minds and thoughts of people. I bet that this man, I'm just going to assume, we don't know, but it seems that Jesus understood the heart of this man and perhaps perhaps his long illness and disability had led him to go deeper and to ask for, for, he was repenting. Jesus, I need you in my life. And the great thing about that is that Jesus demonstrates a graciousness and an eagerness to pour out his mercy and his grace, and he responds even to this fragmentary, imperfect expression of dependence on the mercy of Jesus, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus was actively moving toward this man to forgive him. And that's what he did. Now, it is true that you can't forgive sins that are not committed against you. So three men walk into a room, Harry, Larry, and Joe. I tried not to make them the three stooges, and I think I didn't. But Harry, Larry, and Joe walk into a room, and Harry gets angry at Larry and hauls off and hits him in the face. Larry falls to the ground. His nose is bleeding, and Joe steps in and says, Harry, don't worry. I forgive you. To this, Larry stands up and says, wait a minute, Joe. He didn't hit you. It's not your nose that's bleeding. You can't forgive him. I'm the one he offended. And that would be correct, right? So when Jesus says, I forgive you of your sins, Jesus was laying claim that all of us were created by our creator with a plan and purpose. And when we walk away from his plan and purpose and we sin, we actually do sin against God first and foremost. Jesus, once again, was declaring that he was the Lord of the universe. And then lastly, which is easier, to heal or to forgive? What do you think? I mean, you're thinking, well, I I think it's probably easier to forgive, right? Because forgiveness is invisible. You can't see forgiveness. Healing, you gotta have power to do that. So what, which, Jesus asked the question, which is easier to heal or to forgive? But what people would later learn as the life of Jesus unfolded is this. That when Jesus offered forgiveness, Jesus also knew he would have to go and pay. One of the most amazing chapters in the New Testament and in the Gospels is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and the cup, it's a reference to the cup, is presented to Jesus. It's the cup of suffering. It's like the Father said, Jesus, I don't want to get all theological here, but the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit hatched the plan of the ages before time began and before anything was made. Okay, enough of that. Join my theology class next semester at the Institute. But... Jesus says, when I say your sins are forgiven, 
I know what I'm going to have to do. Because God is a God of justice and sins must be paid for. But Jesus takes the cup and in that, in that time, he asks the Father, is it possible for this cup to pass? There is no answer. He asks him three times. Jesus is under such duress as he contemplates that in the next few hours, he will actually go to a cross. He will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That he begins to perspire blood. That's an intensity like you and I know very little about. Furthermore, it even says in that passage that angels were dispatched to help and support Jesus in this most awful moment as he understood he was going to have to pay. And he had come to pay. You know, some people, they like to trivialize this whole idea of heaven and hell, and, and they, they do a lot of talk about how it's just so unfair that God would send people to hell. And they kind of picture God, uh, you know, as happily and gleefully, you know, just says, bam, you go to hell. And, and you know what? They've never read the New Testament, apparently, because that is not at all the heart of Jesus. Jesus says, I so want you to be forgiven and to be saved. I'm paying for you, I will drink the cup of suffering. And then people say, I don't even, God, just leave me alone. Let me live my life like I want. I don't want you in my life. I don't need you in my life. And Jesus holds out his grace and mercy, and it is spurned. Jesus knew when he healed this man the only way he would have the power and authority to make his legs walk again would be for his legs to be folded together and his feet nailed to a cross and he died on the cross to pay for our sin. Which is easier it wasn't easier to forgive sin. It is the hardest thing you and I have ever contemplated. But Jesus says on the cross, I love you so much, I will drink this cup of suffering so I can forgive you and I can rescue you. I can give you forgiveness and eternal life. I read the story of a little boy and his sister. Um, and this little boy whose sister was sick needed a blood transfusion. And the doctor explained to him that she had had the same disease the boy had recovered from two years earlier. Her only chance of recovery was a transfusion from someone who had previously conquered the disease. And since the two children had the same rare blood type, the boy was the ideal donor. And the question came to this little boy, would you give your blood to Mary? The doctor asked Johnny, and Johnny hesitated. And his lower lip began to tremble 
And then he thought and smiled and said, well, for my sister, sure. Doctor, I'll, I'll give her my blood. So the two children were wheeled into the hospital room. Mary was pale and thin and sick, and Johnny was robust and healthy. Neither one of them spoke, but when their eyes met, Johnny smiled at his sister as the nurse inserted the needle into his arm, and Johnny's smile over the next few minutes faded as he watched his blood flow out of his arm into the tube. And when the ordeal was almost over, Johnny's voice, slightly shaken, broken, broke the silence and said, Doctor, when do I die? Only then did the doctor realize why Johnny had hesitated, why his lip had trembled when he agreed to donate his blood. He thought giving his blood to his sister would mean giving up his life. In that brief moment, he made this great decision and said, yes, I'll do it. Jesus knew we were going to die. He knew we couldn't save ourselves or even stop our sin. So Jesus came and he said, okay, I will pay. And I know it's going to hurt so terribly, physically, emotionally, spiritually, separation from the Father, an agony so great that thinking about it in advance made him sweat drops of blood where an angels, angels had to be dispatched to support Jesus to get him through the moment. And then Jesus willingly down, laid down his life to pay for our sin. If you've never accepted Jesus as your savior, I just wanna tell you, you have no idea how incredible it will be when you receive Jesus and he forgives you and comes into your life and he will change so many things. Would you bow your head? If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your savior, but you want to, how about now? How about today? Do you know that Jesus is eager to forgive you, to save you? Maybe you would want to pray with me right now. You can take my words and make them your own, even in your heart. 